0: You're listening to POP, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Welcome back. This is part two of the podcast with Alexander Bard, former Army of Lovers turned political activist and philosopher. Now, at the end of the last podcast, he talked about his time as a sex worker in Amsterdam. Well, the beginning of this one starts with his trans character in the band Barbie. Barbie. Well, this is
1: the funny thing. I never sold sex as a tranny. I hope I can say tranny. I hope it's not politically incorrect to use the word today. But yeah, uh, I I love the word, by the way. So I Barbie was the tranny character that I co-developed with a friend of mine, John Sermon. I was a student at Stockholm School of Economics. And this was like, just have fun in the spring. Let's do something. I didn't have a recording contract yet, so I just invented the Barbie figure. And I was more suitable than him to play the figure. So the funny thing is that I did explore that by doing my only drag act was the Barbie figure. And I never sold sex. As a tranny, a lot of sex workers do. But I actually went the other way. So what I explored selling sex was my much more masculine side. If anything, I I was a drag king, but with a penis. Right, so... so um uh, I, I think I think that makes sense as well. I think I think when things get too private, you don't put them on the stage. What you do, though, what you creatively do is that you can put the exact opposite of what you're exploring on the stage, and then you can do the other thing in private or professionally. What uh, what you do when you do sex work is not what you do when you make love.
0: But you do distinctly
1: felt- different things. Yeah,
0: I met you in that period. That's when I did the first interview, I think, and. I had the feeling then that this is ahead of its time. This is something that is at I don't know when that was. Was that sort of late 80s, 88, 89? It must have been about that era for it was end. even
1: before that. It was actually oh, uh, it's actually 85, 86.
0: Yeah. And, and, and I remember when coming, the first
1: Army of Lovers single came out one of the night is cold, I'd already changed gender and, and dressed male again.
0: But so the Barbie, was ahead of its time yeah. in a lot of ways, because of the transgender aspect. And the the um, I mean, I, I think uh, it was more. Oh, you, I mean, if you talk to
1: RuPaul, the RuPaul's drag show, whatever it's called. It's fantastic. You would never had RuPaul unless those things had happened. Even Lady Gaga's admitted this was a period when the stuff that I and Camilla Tilling worked with inspired them later. So we were cult. We were definitely cult. Barbie's prostitution twist was a cult record all over America and in Japan. I mean, the stuff we did in Sweden wasn't number one in Sweden. That was never the point. The stuff we did in Sweden was exported through these record stores and, and ended up in all kinds of weird places. And we had fans. We had fans were obsessed with the whole weirdness and craziness of the Barbie figure. Barbie would go on television in Sweden and say that, "Oh, I just had, uh, I, 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 I just heard you found Russian submarines in Stockholm Archipelago. Sorry for bringing them in." You'll find four hundred condoms around my house from last night, right? So Barbie would just explain that the reason why the Russians here because they want to fuck me, and I want four hundred of them. I'm an infomaniac, right? So Barbie Hitchcock, as her name was, was this drag character who was just completely over the top, like the ultimate drag character you could ever think of, right? And sweet and cute, while she was nasty like hell. That was the character. I played it. I enjoyed it, but I wasn't really into the putting on the lady's stockings thing. And I think if I had been, I would have loved it. I would have explored it. I would have stayed with it. But I wasn't. I didn't find the transsexual in me. It's like my girlfriend says that you, you're really a lesbian with a built-in dildo. You know, that's so me. <laughs> if, if, if I want to change gender and go through gender op- gender surgery, I would change my own gender even more. That's me, right? So, body- so I'm desperate to be more masculine than I actually am, if anything. So... The personal journey was that I, I went back to La Camilla and I went back to Jean-Pierre and Camilla Tudin and I told them that, okay, you, you were great to support the Barbie character, but let's turn this into a band. I'm not comfortable being center stage. I think all of us should be center stage. And while I do it, I'm going to change back to being a guy. And then we can go really flamboyant and over the top and see what happens. That became our of lovers So the Barbie product was how we learned to express ourselves and be uncompromising and have fun in what we did. And we were allowed to. And Barbie wasn't signed by Song. He signed me uh, personally while I was doing the Barbie project. And he, he understood why I had to do it. And he thought it was funny. But of course, when I came in through the door with Lavis, he said, this is the big one. You just, you just trained doing Barbie. This is, this is you. This is more honest. This is, this is more what you were about. This is more what La Camilla and Jean-Pierre are about. They're now at the forefront of the whole project. You put your best friend's center stage. Do it, right? And that was Lavis.
0: I think that's really interesting you say that because everyone I've talked to in in, who's been successful in the music industry has basically had their learning process from all areas of their life along the way. And then suddenly the bit that works is when it all combines and comes together at uh, a particular moment in time. And that was it really uh, for Army of Lovers. That's where it suddenly hit a nerve and suddenly you were just massive all across Europe. But tell me about yeah, we, we, we
1: We were still actually cool, experimental with the first album. So uh, we we're allowed to be that. Disco Extravaganza was a, was a kind of hard-earned album. It was ahead of the avalanches that we used sampling extensively because we weren't that interested in singing or even speaking on the records like we later did. We weren't that interested in musically expressing ourselves. We just interested in music that we loved. So we tried to sample and make music that we would love ourselves. That was the entire first album. But when the second album came along, then Ola Hawkinson told me, you kind of, if you just bend it slightly, you know, do more classic songwriting like you do for everybody else, because I was a very successful songwriter already in Sweden, had several number one records for other artists. So he said, why don't you write something that's Army of Lovers that has the catchy tunes to it that you do for everybody else? And I said, OK, so if Army of Lovers was a sort of left field experimental band. But yeah, we, our videos are played on MTV already, right? The bullet, the first video was on MTV. That's correct. We weren't number one on the charts or anything. But when the second album came along, Crucified came out and then it just exploded. So it just it was just like everybody was waiting for Army Lovers to have that hit record and happen. And when it
0: came, boom, it went through the roof. Well, but what is it about Crucified that made it such a massive hit, do you think? Have you ever sort of thought about it? Oh God! It was so gay.
1: It <laughs> was AIDS. It was. He was like. It was like. It was finally, finally, there was some hope on the horizon. And I remember that many of my gay friends told me that I don't even know whether I want to survive or not if they get these medications that make us survive. Or what quality of life could I possibly? Because all their friends had died. You know, it was slaughterhouse between 1984 and 1992. The re- the reason the reason why fashion is terrible these days is because all the gay guys that should do the fashion all died during those eight years because women can't do fashion only gay guys can. Women are horrible at fashion. They they do the same fashion every year. It's always gray and beige. Whereas the gay guy comes into the, the door and says, "You're a woman. Dress up. More color. Higher heels. Get sexy." Yes, you dare, sister. That's what gay guys do. That's why they do fashion really well. And the reason why we have this lack in our culture today why Why Broadway went into repetition mode, what the new novel stuff that should exist today doesn't exist the way it should is because for eight years, every damn good-looking gay guy in the West died, more or less. And the few that survived were set back for the rest of their lives because they spent eight years in, in wardens and hospitals, right? So I knew there was something about that and, and Crucival was just this hysterical idea that that we would play with it take the christ figure put a jew Jean-Pierre barda on the cross which is totally detrimental to christianity to smith about itself and then I'd be a gay jewish guy and then let him die on the cross and said oh i have to sacrifice myself AIDS, whatever because if i don't sacrifice myself then you cannot live right and that became the crucified anthem
0: and but it's also it, a celebration it, in a way isn't it that's the that's why it yeah worked.
1: it's Oh, because it's it a total tragic comedy. It's like, it's like it can't decide whether it's totally devastated and totally sad. It, 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 it Cruiserweight is absolutely this sort of is very Russian in the sense that it's like, oh, I love being sad and horrible. <laughs> it had that feeling to it. Well, I remember when I came to Bunker, it was a huge disco in Buenos Aires in Argentina, where I used to go in the winter just to get some sun. right? And I walked into Bunker and it was a huge gay disco and at the middle of the night, crucified, burst out, max a single format, you know, next 50 minutes of crucified ordeal on the dance floor. And people just went, wow, they went crazy. And I, this is what all the young gay guys do now when they're right in between the death sentence that AIDS was and possibly a hope for a future. And then this song comes along and it just nails it. It doesn't nail it in the obvious way because that, that would never work. It nails precisely the sort of artistic intricate Way like, what is this song really about? Well, it's certainly about me. <laughs> and then they went out of the dance floor and sang along with, with with the lyrics, of course.
0: You're listening to pop the history makers with me, Steve Blame.
1: Now, just just keeping army of lovers together was we all know a hellhole. That was just like it, it was a nightmare. We came out of Sweden. Sweden had very little experience of internationally successful pop acts. There was just ABBA, Europe, and Roxette or Secret Service before that. So we didn't have a management industry. We didn't have psychotherapists, and we needed it. So we were left to ourselves, basically, being awake 24 hours a day promoting our records. That's what happened. And we were on tour, and La Camilla broke down. And eventually led to the split between her uh, on one side, and me, Jean Pierre, and Camilla, to split on the other side. And the only way for the band to survive, actually, at that stage, was to introduce Mika de la Cour, mm-hmm. and we did it when we went over to the States. But how did uh, fame
0: change you? Because that—that that, you know—you say that you had all that pressure on you and everything. Yeah, fame does have an impact on, on people, and if you're in a band, fame has a different impact on the different people. Oh, in the and band, especially and if you don't have support.
1: Yeah, and especially if you don't want to support from anywhere. It, it wasn't that our Swedish record company weren't nice to us. They just didn't have the experience. They had no idea. How do you, how do you handle somebody who just had an international breakthrough in less than three months? Because even with the Swedish acts before us, like Abba and Roxette, they were prepared for years. Of being successful in Scandinavia before the breakthrough came. So they knew what was gonna happen. We had no idea. We came from absolutely out of nowhere and suddenly we and Dr. Alban were number one all over Europe. And the only How guy met was Dr. Change? Alban. He had no idea what it was like either. He was just a dentist coming out of Stockholm and suddenly was number one in, in Germany. It was so weird because, because of MTV, the breakthroughs were suddenly so quick and we were not prepared. So I had the chaos in the band What I decided to do basically I think is that, okay, let's make one song at a time, one record at a time. Let's have some kind of apparatus that works reasonably so we can put these records out there. And I knew that if the army of lovers would have split after the Paris fashion shows where everything broke down, I would be dead in the music industry. And I would have dragged Lacombella and jean with me. So the only way for me to survive in the music industry was to show some maturity and have Lacombella kicked because she was the one who didn't work and gel with the others and then introduce a new member and go off to America. And I did not want to pick another black girl. That would have been the ultimate cynical move. We had one on the way in, but no. The thing was, no, that's degrading to La Camilla. She cannot be replaced. It's better to create a legend about her. She can have her career, off she can go, do her own thing. She should be set free. This should be like, this should be as decent a divorce as it possibly could be. So let's take the blonde girl instead. And then Mikhaila de la Cour jumped in. And when we came to Latin America, it turned out to be a really smart move. Because in Latin America and Russia, where army lovers broke big time in 1993 and 1994, Michaela was a star. She was what they wanted. So, so it turned out that we lost a lot of the credibility, probably with MTV, Certainly Western Europe, because La Camilla was the star. We promoted her that way. The breakup with her looked like the, these two nasty gay guys would ever break up with a black girl. So he, he, the drama was all over the place. But we saved army lovers by just going somewhere else and having another girl join the band. And the year after Dominica joined, then the fun returned. So I was fined I mean, after po- that.
0: Pop music is in many ways temporary, or it's often temporary. You know, it's like you 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 has form a band, and if it lasts four years, you're really lucky. I mean, we did some research at MTV once, and I think it was uh, in the late 80s about the length, average length of a band, or you know, and it was sort of their main focus of success would be over a four-year period. Um when yeah, you- it's an
1: advice I got in 1985 from Ola Hawkinson. The day he signed me, he told me, just remember this one thing, Alexander if you're this multi-talented, is that pop stars have an average age span of two years. Songwriters have an average age span of 20 years. Uh, don't jump to the stage too quickly. Rather stay in the studio and work hard there because then you got have a long and prosperous career. And that was the best advice I could ever have had because I focused on the songwriting. Then I started Army of Lovers. Then I did the production part. So producer-songwriter was my identity. And then having bands was just, the fun way of ex, you know exploring my own ideas in an uncompromising way. And that's why I did have four bands during my 25 years in the music industry. And I loved every one of them. And they were all totally different from one another, which is exactly why I wanted to go in different directions, explore different ideas.
0: When did you get bored with the music industry, or did you?
1: No, I, I, it, it was sad when the CD crisis came along, because in 1998, Everybody told you the golden age music industry was still ahead of us. I knew that was wrong. I had Napster at home. I knew they were lying to us. And that was just wishful thinking. And and I started reading Marshall McLuhan and these media theorists quickly got into their world and realized, okay, this is a paradigm shift. And the music industry is now the first industry that uh, deplores the future. And that's got to be incredibly hard. So I sort of predicted that. From being the coolest industry in the world, the music industry would soon hire lawyers to chase teenagers. And lawyers chasing teenagers is the uncoolest thing that exists. It's like parents going to a rave. It's, It's just unforgivably, you know, tragic and bad. So it won't work. And that's exactly what happened. Five years after that, by 2003, when all the CD stores were finally closing down rapidly across Europe, you knew that the music industry was not a cool place to be. It was a sad place to be. The figures were down, profits were diminishing and and, and disappearing. And I was out in a way. I did Alcazar at the time and wrote wrote songs and produced records. Uh, But I lived in Berlin these years when the the whole downturn came. And then finally, I did uh, Bodies Without Organs, BWO with Anders Hansen, and set up the band in 2004. And it was my way of thinking, but could I still do music and think it's fun? All of the conditions for producing music are radically different. So the smaller margins have to be more clever product placements of the videos, whatever. Yeah. But you, you just got to do this. If you want to make music, it, it's, you know, at the end of the day, you got the knife on, on, on your neck and this is what you need to do. So BW was an experiment in that. And it worked, but it was one of the few bands in Sweden that were really, really successful in the double knot. So we had, we had, we had BW from 2004, to 2011, And it worked, and it produced hit single after hit single. But we were dependent on radio money and those kind of incomes because record sales were, they were bottom. They were completely at the bottom. And I think that's when the music industry started getting boring. Um, Then the realization that Spotify would save the industry came to me a few years later. That was like, I I, I worked with Spotify in 2005. By 2008, it was obvious that streaming would save the industry, and it would be a money spinner again. But it would be a very different industry. It wouldn't be an industry of subversive pop culture, the kind of things that you and I love. It would be an industry that basically would consist of playlists and you would serve teenagers endless amounts of songs that they wouldn't relate to. Other than that, it was just an extract in the playlist. So I think the music industry today is much more similar to the music industry in the 1940s when you went to a restaurant and there was an orchestra and they had a vocalist who sang and they had a conductor. And actually the orchestra was named after the conductor, not after the singer. So... I think that's what the music industry is today. The producers have become more important. The the songwriters that have a knack for hit songs are more important than ever. But the artists are interchangeable. It's just another face, another face, another face thrown in there because it's all playlists. I think it's impossible to create subversive pop culture today through the music industry. And that's what I wanted to do. So when I left in 2013 and the Gravitonas guys went off and were very successful without me, there you go. This, you know, you're a good coach if you coach people to do fine without you or be even bigger without you, which they were. Love those guys. But I left in 2013 because, to me, they still they felt enormous enthusiasm going to Korea, writing hit songs for Korean boy bands. I felt nothing. I thought, I've done this for 25 years. It's time for me
0: to get out and become a full-time philosopher. I mean, that's quite a change. That's, I mean, what is a philosopher to start with? I mean how it's can another you... art it's another
1: art form I am. Yeah, an but artist, how can so... you just decide to become a philosopher? Oh yeah yeah. So I you just I had a really great uncle who was a professor of philosophy and theology and he was like my second dad when I grew up. And he told me when I was 7 years old, find your archetype. Fi- find your personality type. And you will discover you probably have a primary one and you have a secondary one. The primary one is the things you do with these. It just looks like magic you just do it, right? Secondary archetype is that what you can do, especially if you get educated to do it, but it takes an effort. And actually, the music industry was my secondary archetype. Why? Because you can't be a philosopher when you're 18. And the people who tried to become philosophers, they were young and were smart enough to do it, like Heidegger and Wittgenstein, always regretted the books they broke with when they were young. They had to rewrite their entire philosophy as they got older. I don't think you can do philosophy until you're at least 40 years old. It's just impossible before them. It's that complex. So... I was perfectly happy to wait. Now, I didn't know whether I would ever become a philosopher or not. It was actually in the 1990s. It was actually during a drug trip. It was so long ago, I can talk about it. But I was taking a trip with two friends who were writers. And during the trip, they they, they almost started like a trial with me. They were just like, why do you write these pop songs for Alexander? You could be the next Hegel or Nietzsche. You have the potential to be a great thinker, which is awesome. It's just like, why are you wasting your time? And yeah, it was true. The songwriting part, the producing records part, the touring with artists part was the easy part in that sense, but it wasn't my primary archetype. It wasn't what I was meant to do. Rather, I realized that if I take the experience from working directly with media and then take that into the academic world, which is a very rare combination, you you never find an academic who makes a career in media. And you never find a media person that makes an academic career. And I knew that mix could be a potentially really strong mix. And when Ola Hawkinson and I decided to sell Stockholm records to Universal Music in 1998, I had fuck off money on my bank account for the first time in my life. I remember it was a Tuesday morning. I called the bank and said, you got all this money in your bank account. You could do whatever you like the rest of your life. Yeah, I got fuck off money. I can do exactly what I like. And the same week I got a phone call from the Stockholm School of Economics and they said basically, we need somebody to do digital studies. The internet has arrived. We have no idea what it is, but it's going to take over the world. And you're perfect for it, Alexander, because you're obviously online and you do media and you work in the music industry and you understand how hard it is to get access to people's hearts and and you know sell them records or whatever. And you're also a trained academic. Whoa, unique combo. We'll give you the job. And I've been there at the Stockholm School of Economics, walking in and out for the past twenty three years. That set the stage for the first book, The Netocrats, that I co wrote with Jan Sertikist, the year 2000. Three years later came The Global Empire. And now we have written five books and working on our sixth one together, Jan Sertikist and I. And that became a philosophy career. So i became a philosopher and, and I, I did philosophy and music together in sort of in the mix like sex work and sex love, you know, mix of two things, until 2013. And then one morning, 2013, I woke up and realized, listen, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be mediocre at both things if I don't skip one of them. I really, really want to be brilliant. If I want to go back to sort of being the subversive version of Max Martin or something, which I could be possibly, I've been there before, then I have to work hard on it and skip the books. Or I write another, th- I had written three books by then, I write another three books with Jan. But this time I take myself very, very seriously. And I do my absolute utmost as a writer and a philosopher. But then I got to skip the music. And it was an easy choice because music had given me everything already. It was a finished lover. It was 25 years. I could go to the next Grammys' Goblin and say, thank you for everything you gave me. I hope I gave you something back. But my love affair with you is over. I'm leaving. I'm not going to write another song because I don't want to be a mediocre hobby musician. I hate that. Especially not an older, mediocre hobby musician. That's the worst thing in the world. So off I went. I think the last song I wrote with Andreas was actually the winning song at, in The Voice TV show in China. <laughs> it, it was a mediocre song, to be honest about it. But it was the winning song on The Voice show in China. So I thought it was a perfect way to go.
0: Right? Now, when you were a teenager, you talked about, or you know, when you were very young, talked about being with your sister in the bedroom, listening uh, to the radio. And essentially i would think at that time dreaming of being in this other world which you achieved okay so you went into no 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 i had
1: no idea when i was a kid that i'd be a pop star because i wasn't a musician i was living it remember this is the 1970s i was living in a paradigm where you play instruments and read notes and sing well if you want to make a career in the music industry you know, the kind of things they fool people who go to these idle TV shows. Like you got to be good at these things too, to have a career, which is bullshit, by the way. The most interesting artists ever got around those things, like Army of Lovers. Like we didn't care if we could sing or dance or whatever. We just went to premieres and openings all the time and looked better than everybody else. And we got the biggest pictures. So everybody wanted to be us. That's all it takes to be a pop star. But uh, no, I had no idea. It was only when I bought a synthesizer in 1982 in Amsterdam, and started making sounds to my video art pieces and my friends or video artists came to me and asked me you make such great sounds to these art pieces why don't you make sounds to my piece too why don't you become a video so- video art sound engineer and then i thought well why don't i then write songs period and those songs caught the attention of record companies and they were talented songs there was complexity to them. They were weird and wonderful and had quirky ideas to them. This was obviously a guy who was musically talented. That's when I discovered that I could become a songwriter. Then I discovered I could be a record producer. Barbie was only meant as a joke. I never thought of myself as a pop star when I was Barbie for God's sake. Then I would have never done Barbie. No, it was only when we started Army of Lovers that I realized I now have so many number one hit songs that I've co-written that maybe I should dare to go on the stage with my own name as a pop star. It was only in 1988 that I started exploring that idea. I had no idea when I was a kid that I would ever be this sort of guy running around on the stage being glamorous. No, not at all. I I did theater. That was the natural connection. When I went to America when I was 17, I went to drama school. I was supposed to, and I wrote my first play and had it performed when I was 19 years old. My talent was definitely theater, but theater was dusty and old. And what the music industry offered was new, fresh and technology, which was a much more interesting combination. So when I got the offer in the 1980s to skip theater and do the music industry instead,
0: that was the easy choice. I mean, earlier we talked about the attention economy to say that uh, capitalism is dead and attention is... Insane. Oh, you're
1: not allowed to say attention economy because it's not an economy. Okay. Attention, okay. attention, attention society. Yeah. An, yeah. Economy okay. is capitalism. Whenever you talk about economy, it is capitalism you're talking about. No, attention is what we do not trade. Attention is what we will not give away to somebody for money. That's exactly what's the most valuable thing in the world now more than ever. That's what we call the attention society.
0: Yeah. What do old people like me need to learn to be able to stay relevant in the world today? I'll just stay curious.
1: That's all it takes. It's just like, yeah, it, it's... um. I think of you probably experienced the same thing. About somewhere around the age of 35, people slow down, become conservative. So... If they love Bruce Springsteen when they were thirty-five, they're gonna love Bruce Springsteen when they're seventy-five, and they're still gonna think Bruce Springsteen was the peak of civilization. Everything after it went downwards. No, you went downwards. You became older. You became boring. What happens at thirty-five is that the vast majority of people are so drenched in baby diapers and and marriage problems and everything and career moves and things, so they just break down and they lose all interest in the new. They become essentially conservative, right? So. They want to concern things as they are when they're 35 and think that's universal, valid for everybody. They don't realize they're pathetic to those who are younger and they're already too boring to people who are older. So after 35, you need to make an effort. But once you get through that, say you're over 40 years old. I started BWO when I was over 40 years old. And, and the idea was very weird with this band. The, the idea was that we take Mark Dorolinsky, the most good-looking guy in the world, who's very, very handsome and sings fantastically, and he brings his parents with him, his band. It takes, like, it takes Marina and Alexander, who are 20 years older than him, and have them play the instruments and look ultra cool on stage while he's like the average Joe. It worked. BW worked. It was also one of these weird ideas for a band that nobody had seen before, so it made sense. But when we did that, I was over 40 years old when I started the band, and my absolute incessant curiosity for songwriting and for new sounds and, and making a new record that hadn't been made before, that hadn't been heard before, I shared that passion with Anders Sanson. I shared that passion with Maria Shevchenko. We were all passing the 40 barrier and we realized other people our age are boring. We're not because we're still curious. So, if you, I know people who were curious until the day they died. And, and I think that's, that's what artists should be. You should always be curious and always out looking for the new.
0: I want to end with one thing because on Twitter, it's clear that. Um, you are loved and hated in equal measure. I mean, sometimes the hate... Is... As if my career had ever been different from that? <laughs> no, not at all. But <laughs> it's quite a shock when when I, when I saw your Twitter, or I, I mean, I follow you in any case, but I saw the, the, the Twitter page and sometimes you just think, my God, how do you... Is it better to be loved or hated or is it all irrelevant?
1: It's totally relevant. What counts is being respected. And you don't earn respect by trying to be loved. So again, we've talked about the narcissist and the agoraphobic. The reason why we love the agoraphobics more on stage than we love the narcissist. Whitney Houston was agoraphobic. Michael Jackson was agoraphobic. Prince was agoraphobic. They were not narcissistic. They had to take drugs just to go on a stage to dare to walk up on the stage. But once they were on the stage, they could handle the mass because the mass was now in their control. So the agoraphobe is looking for is that, could I be on a stage so I can control the mass? and They do what I want them to do. Then I'm perfectly happy standing here and I couldn't care less what they think of me because this is all about my control of them. It's not what they think about me. So Whitney Houston didn't kill herself because she regretted anything with her audience and she wasn't loved enough. No, she was probably bored to death with the whole industry and being with me, Houston day and night. So she took the drugs just to get release agoraphobic, released from all the attention she was given that she never asked for in the first place. That's the agoraphobe. So the agoraphobic character is interesting here. And I think I certainly have that, that, that trait because I'm never nervous when I walk out on the stage. Never. All the other guys are, I kind of miss that. It's just like, oh, you're nervous. you got to go out there and show them what you can do. And I'm just like, no, it's just work for me. <laughs> it's, like, it's like sex work was when I was 20, then speeches when I'm 60, then performing on a stage with a band was when I was 40. It's not different at all. I just do my job and I'm proud to do my job, but there's nothing else to it than the job itself. When you're on the stage, And you're playing the keyboards and you're singing the harmonies and 60,000 people in front of you are singing along because you made the number one record that season. This is the song they all want to hear and sing along to. And you're the star of that song. You play that song and you know that next year somebody else is going to be here because I'm not going to hit it right the next season. Again, I'm I'm not going to be that lucky another year. And next year, if I come back here, I have four people in the audience who are disinterested instead of the 60,000 that I have now. So... Am I here because the 60,000, because they love me? No, they don't love me. They love each other, hopefully. They're out with their friends and families hanging out. They might even get their date of their life and get married with somebody they meet tonight because I'm here performing to them. I'm just excuse for them to be here. I'm serving them. But the reason why I'm here here because i'm in a band and i'm hanging out with these three other guys in the band and they're fantastic and our road is are handpicked because our road is are fantastic and we're gonna go off and party like mad when the performance is over that's why you go on tour so the the, um, the 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 same thing goes through with everything i've done is that this i think the agoraphobic character is the one i put on the stage that's that's what i perfectly happy to put other people on stage next to me who can be as glamorous as they like. I'm not in competition with anybody. If they're more glamorous than me, then I share them on too, like everybody else does. And I'm happy to do that, but I only wanted one thing out of the performance and that was that the audience stayed in their place and didn't storm the stage or didn't walk away. And the way to do that is called respect. And the way to keep respect for years is to stay ambiguous. Don't, Don't ever go easy to read never people hate that when they figure out what your thing is and what you're up to and and you don't even when they figure out you can't surprise yourself any longer when they figure out you're no longer curious they get tired of you and they throw you away for very good reasons because you lose all respect but if you stay ambiguous it means you stay alive you stay questioning uh you dare to say the politically incorrect when that should be said you know then then you always stay ambiguous because it's ambiguous. People are always talking about you and you're always interesting. And then you become a phenomenon.
0: Brilliant. Well, Alexander, stay curious. Stay
1: <laughs> Same to
0: you, <laughs> Steve. Steve. Being opinionated and wonderful and interesting and what a life. So, yeah, you,
1: let me cheer on that and say that I'm, I'm totally for LGBT classic that's my new term these days i i hate when lgbt had all these other letters added to it it sounds like psychiatric diseases go back to lgbt classic stay political no it's not lgbt people don't need to add letters to stay culturally relevant they create fucking culture if anything lgbt people are culture so so if culture is something they're born to be they don't have to proclaim it all the time but lgbt classic as a political struggle you and I are both concerned how hard it is for gay guys in countries like Iran and Uganda today. That, to me, that's what I'm on fire about politically. That's my real concern. And that's also why I'm pro-blacks, but I was anti-Black Lives Matter. I didn't think that organization was what blacks needed, but that's up to blacks to decide. So it's, it's not that hard. It's just that these days with the tweets and things, you become controversial because people decide to misread what you say. And at the end of the day, if you stay ambiguous, eventually they will have to read what you actually meant.
0: That's it for part two and wraps up this two part interview with Alexander Bard of Army of Lovers. Now, there are many more interviews online. Do check them out. Follow the link in the biography to find the Spotify playlists, the membership where you can help me keep doing this, and also a link to my own personal Instagram page.